So, I might be preaching to the converted a bit here, but anyway, here goes. I was in my late teens, and after years of knowing I was queer and having only told very few people, I decided I need help to deal with what I was going through. So I chose to tell a trusted older female friend. We were in her kitchen, and after trying to psych myself up for what seemed like an eon, I blurted out, I'm struggling with homosexuality. There was a change in her face I really didn't like, and she asked me what I meant, and I needlessly clarified, well, I'm attracted to men. There was another long silence, and she huffed, and she puffed, and she leaned on the draining board, and looked out the kitchen window, and at long last, after another age, she asked, well, where does that leave you, working with children in the church nursery or doing Sunday school? I felt punched. Growing up queer, I just knew, not that I had words to describe or make sense of what I was feeling, but I knew I was different. I preferred the company of girls and women. I looked at men and boys with awe and felt stirred when I thought of Tom Selleck's hairy chest in Magnum P.I. <laughs> I hero-worshipped Hans, the handsome Swiss man who lived next door in Saudi Arabia and secretly wanted to marry him. And finally, as teen years dawned, I just downright fancied the boys around me at school. I learned shame as a queer child. I said things that other children picked up on and mocked me for. My effeminacy and preference for girls' toys was shamed by those around me. I knew I was different, and that difference was wrong, it seemed to me. Always the shame deepened. It was just then, as I was realizing that what I was had a label, that I became a Christian. I found in the church so much love and acceptance. I was a lonely child, bullied and with only one or two friends. The church offered me an instant expansion of my social network, friends my own age. And older people were delighted to welcome me into the church and took a huge interest in my life. Most of all, I felt the love of God, something I'd known all my life, but in church it felt clearer. Inevitably, though, I began to see that the church had something to say on the shameful secret I was keeping. I felt more faulty than I had before, and my huge shame deepened. I tried hard to force myself to fantasize about women. I put on shows of which women I fancied most, from Oprah Winfrey to Dr. Beverly Crusher in Star Trek The Next Generation. I mean, it was so obvious, wasn't it? Over the years, I've been prayed for many, many times and even had two exorcisms attempted on me. I've been offered ex-gay ministry many times and I so nearly took up the offers, but always I held back. I think that no matter how much shame I felt, nor how much self-loathing or believing the church's teaching that gay sex was wrong, being queer felt like who I was, natural. What was unnatural were the contortions I was trying I, the contortions I was attempting, trying to make it otherwise, the knots I was tying in my identity that strangled the life out of me. In 1993, I came to London and met friend of St. Luke's, Rob Francis, Denise Ward, Helen Kemwar, and my puppeteer friend from Israel, Sharon Silva. They all showed me in different ways that being true to who I was was far more honest and important than trying to conform to what I began to see as faulty church teaching. I was in my early 20s and thought it was time I told my mum. We were in the kitchen. Mum sat in her chair doing the crossword. 
Fag in hand, brew on the side. I sat in the pine rocking chair, my stomach getting more and more tight with each rock. Mum, I've got something to tell you. Oh God, what have you done? Came the reply. <laughs> I'm gay, I said. She huffed and she puffed. She put her pen down and she took a deep, long drag on her fag. She blew the smoke away and after a bit of conversation that was remarkably easy, she said, well, you're my son, I love you and that's all right with me. She added after another long drag on a fag, don't tell your dad, leave him to me. You see, it was around people from St. Luke's I began to see another way. I realized that the Bible had been mistranslated, misused, and misinterpreted, shoehorning contemporary LGBTQ plus experience into passages commenting on very different times and sets of cultural norms. For a man to sleep with a man in ancient Greece meant hugely different things to a man sleeping with a man in ancient Rome, let alone what that means for me to sleep with my husband now. So I started to accept myself as I am and began to feel free of the church's traditional teaching and to understand things in a different way. No matter how much understanding I have of how the Bible has been misused and how much I live an out-queer life, I'm still affected by the shame that I learned as a child, which was cemented in place by my teen years in a conservative church. And that shame leads me to doubt my stance. I still deep down find it hard to accept myself as an out queer man. Conservatives would be quick to jump on that and say, that's the still quiet voice of God showing you you're in error and calling you home. I see it completely differently. Would the voice of God call me to act from shame? Would God's voice be that of self-loathing? Well, the arguing goes on. Conservative Christians see LGBTQ identity and campaign for rights as the vanguard of opposition to God's plan for humanity and his established order. And the Bible is seen by many LGBTQ plus people as irrelevant, hurtful, and a negative bludgeon. What if we could find images of queer relationships and identity in the Bible? Many LGBTQ plus people do find people of faith do. David and Jonathan's intense relationship in the Old Testament, or Ruth's total devotion for Naomi. Jesus himself with his beloved disciple John, who lay on his breast even at the Last Supper, the only male disciple to remain faithful throughout the crucifixion. And don't even get me started on what Christ gets up to in the non-canonical Gospels. But for me, the most important one is the story we heard in Matthew's Gospel today. The tale is also told in Luke. The narratives differ slightly, but in detail they're essentially the same. Jesus, having finished a bout of teaching, is on his way to Capernaum, where an, on the road a centurion turns up. He's absolutely heart-stricken and begs Jesus for help. The word in Greek used of the centurion is parakaloon, which conveys grave desperation, which only comes close in English in the King James Version with a beseeching Jesus. You see, his beloved slave is gravely ill and is about to die. Jesus says, okay, let's go. But the centurion stops Christ with the immortal words, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. The centurion acknowledges the supreme authority of the Son of God in realizing he can heal from afar. Jesus is absolutely amazed at the faith and insight of the centurion. 
In the gospel accounts, the Greek word used to describe the servant are paeus and doulos. Doulos literally means slave, and paeus means boy or servant, similar to French, garçon. But paeus has another sexual connotation. It also means the passive or junior partner in man-on-man action in ancient Greece. Even doulos can carry that connotation. The ancient writer Procopius used it to describe the young male lovers of Germanic warriors he encountered while on his travels. So was the centurion the male lover of the slave? Well, the way he begs Christ to heal the slave with such desperation, desperation anyone would feel seeing their lover die, or the fact that the slave is beloved of the centurion in Luke's gospel seems to suggest so. And then there's the usual practice of freeborn Roman military hierarchy of taking lovers while away from their Roman families. Emperors Hadrian and Julius Caesar both had many male lovers while on tour. Roman morals demanded, though, that the freeborn nobleman never be passive in the relationship. That was unforgivable and at times punishable by death. Only slaves, prostitutes, and certain low-born disreputables like actors could be passive. In first century Israel, it was usual for for Jewish writers to criticize and characterize the occupying Romans as having loose morals, especially decrying them for sleeping with men. So any first century Pharisee would, as we heard in the second reading, have their suspicions upon seeing the centurion's outpouring of grief and given the status of the servant being beloved. Well, if this is the case... Wasn't the relationship a sexually exploitative one, that of master and slave? Well, one could argue that, but maybe it had grown into a genuine reciprocal love, as with Alexander the Great and his slave Hephaestion, his his lifelong male lover, and especially judging by the centurion's desperation. And let's not forget that slavery was an accepted cultural norm within the historical context of the story, one, unfortunately, the New Testament remains sadly ambivalent about. Another criticism of seeing the centurion and slave as lovers is that of his standing with the local community, touched on in the version of Luke. Jews come to Christ in support of the centurion, and they say to Jesus, they say that the centurion loves the Jews and even built their synagogue. Well, he may well have loved the Jews, but he did not count himself worthy of having a Jew, Christ, come under his roof. Was this gay shame at play here, judging himself unclean against traditional teaching? And quite frankly, what goes on between a centurion and his servant is behind closed doors. He wasn't likely to be broadcasting it until now to even his soldiers, let alone his, the Jews. What was important here was the centurion's unsurpassed and unshakable faith and the deep love and grief of one mind for another. Jesus' commendation of the centurion's faith is one of the greatest tributes Jesus pays to anyone, anywhere in the Gospels, a Gentile Roman occupying officer to boot. The faith is made even more prized and special precisely because he is an unclean Gentile who sleeps with men, whom the Jews would normally hold as a sinner. But Jesus doesn't condemn the men's relationship. Jesus instead condemns the faith of the Pharisees and says that the Gentile sinners will come and feast with Abraham in the kingdom before them. Do we as Christians get caught up in our own legalism and forget the deep spirituality of the LGBTQ plus community, those that we consider to be outside the will of God? 
Will we not be thrown into the outer darkness while God embraces those who are queer, those that we judge to fail and recognize Christ in? Daniel Helmeniak says in his ace book, Sex and the Sacred, Gay Identity and Spiritual Growth, we cannot conclude Jesus' silence on the relationship meant he approved of it. We don't know what Jesus was thinking. But still, in the light of the often heard claim that homosexuality is the paradigm of human opposition to God's plan for creation, it is peculiar Jesus never spoke out against same-sex behaviors, especially when he was confronted with the Roman centurion. It is open to speculation. But as a queer man, I find enormous resonance with the story. I love the church. I work for its, te I work for its existence, though by its traditional teaching I am considered an outsider. Jesus calls me and affirms my faith despite that teaching, and in him I feel peace, regardless of the poison left in me from years of condemnation. Growing up queer can be difficult, especially in religious homes, Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, or homes where one doesn't know any other queer people. We learn shame and self-loathing. We grow up feeling alone and scared, scared of people finding out our secret and scared of a God who, it seems, would judge and condemn us. It's important that the church stop its narrative of demonizing queer people. It may argue it's not being homophobic, nor that it's hurting people, just trying to lead them into healing. But all it's doing is leading teenagers into years of self-doubt, self-loathing, and that all often, too often leads them to take their own lives. Research has found that attempted suicide rates amongst suicidal, amongst, and su the, oh, sorry. Research has found that attempted suicide rates and suicidal thoughts among LGBTQ plus people is significantly higher than among the general population. And another study particularly highlighted the link between suicide and queer youth from religious backgrounds. Lizzie Lowe was a bright, talented teenager who lived in the suburbs of Manchester. She took her own life a few years ago, aged just seven, 14. She was from a church family and felt that her sexuality wouldn't have been accepted or tolerated by her church or the parents. Part of the huge tragedy of the story is that prior to her death, her church wasn't even anti-LGBTQ+, it's just that it never talked about it. Since then, the church has made sure it's known as a welcoming place for queer people in the hope that this doesn't happen again. It's really important for these reasons that children are given positive LGBTQ plus stories and role models in primary and secondary schools because they may be queer and that positive narrative might just help them start to come to terms with who they are, being from backgrounds that might not affirm their identity. It certainly would have helped me, that fey queer kid who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he preferred men and loved Christ. Happy Pride Month.